Okay, this is Romans, colon, doctrines. The doctrine of justification, part eight. Trying to give it sort of a thorough treatment. And so it's taken a little more than seven hours. We're going to go eight, maybe nine, possibly round it off with ten. The doctrine of justification. Today we'll be dealing with what I call a specialty, a theological functional specialty called dialectics, where we kind of get in the ring with a couple of other views of justification than the one we perceive to be Paul's view, which has to do with the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. So we don't have a particular, well, maybe we will turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, just for a moment for a text verse, because I think this has application to our message today. The doctrine of justification, very important, probably the most important doctrine that would derive from the study of Romans, and it's one that is being battled over in academics today, or academia, or whatever you want to call it. If I were to give this message today a title, I would call it Justification as Sanctification, or I would call it Justification in Our Present Livingness, the impact of it now in our present livingness. The grace that makes us right in God's sight is the grace that makes us holy. And the grace that makes us new, the same grace makes us right, makes us holy, makes us new. Now, justification is a judicial declaration, merely a divine declaration on the sinner, or what is known as a forensic imputation of righteousness to the sinner at the moment of the sinner's faith. This is one view, a very popular view of justification. If Justification is just a judicial declaration or an imputation of righteousness to the sinner at the moment of the sinner's individual faith. Then justification does not make the sinner righteous, but leaves the sinner as a sinner with a legal right to heaven whose faith is somehow counted by God as justifying righteousness or even the faith that saves. As a sinner with a mere forensic or judicial declaration or imputation of righteousness through his or her faith, then a further action is required, they will say. Those who hold this view call that additional process sanctification. It occurs as the sinner who is saved by grace, yes, but through the sinner's faith, then walks in the spirit and becomes what they call progressively sanctified. If, on the other hand, and this I believe to be Paul's view, justification means rectification, 
then the sinner is set or made right, made right by the action of God on him or her. Rectification makes right what or who went wrong. Justification may also be construed or interpreted as making new what went wrong and has been classified as old. Justification as rectification would then be viewed as an all-encompassing act of God, which includes sanctification. Now, if we finish this idea of justification as sanctification, perhaps next week we'll get on to glorification, which is really the last straw. Now, as God sees it, the divine action of justification and sanctification of the whole human race occurred in the death and the resurrection of his son. Moreover, this action called the slaughter and the rising again of the Paschal Lamb of God. To stand in the presence of God. John 19, 34 to 35 testifies that the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world has done so. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Paschal Lamb has been slaughtered. Let's therefore celebrate the feast. Revelation 5, 5, and 6. It's an action that in God's sight took place in eternity. As one interpretation of Revelation 13, 8 says, the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation or literally before the foundation or the creation of the universe, the foundation of the world. This event, which in God's sight took place in eternity, in the sight of eyewitnesses, it took place in time and space, in history. It is an eternal act and a universally salutary or saving act for all of creation, including all of the human race. Now, there's a man called the preacher, the Hebrew Koheleth, Koheleth, K-O-H. E-L-E-T-H, and in Ecclesiastes 3.14, the preacher, Koheleth, said this, I know that whatever God does is to the age, literally, the best way to describe forever, and it means to the age where all things are eternalized, so it means that what God does is eternal. Nothing can be added to it. Please note that. Nothing can be added to it. What God does, what God does, things like predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, things like foreknowing us, which is the same thing, things like calling us into existence as a new creation, justifying us, glorifying us. Nothing can be added to it. It's a divine action. And nothing can be taken away from it. God does it, he says, says Koheleth. God does it. The emphasis on God. God does it. So that men may have reverential awe before his face. 
Or we could say, as they gaze into his face, fear or reverential awe and trembling, as we call it. The epistle of Paul to the saints in Rome proclaims the gospel in its immense scope and its universal horizon to people who have only an elementary understanding of the gospel, who, in the words of the writer to the epistle to the Hebrews, are yet unacquainted with the word of righteousness. There's a tremendous affinity between Romans and Hebrews in that regard, whereas Hebrews emphasizes more explicitly the one-time slaughter and resurrection of the Lamb of God. The writer bluntly says to them, you are yet unacquainted with the word of righteousness. Same thing Paul could have said to the Roman saints, because the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. The word of righteousness, logo dikaiosune, is more than the gospel of God, which unveils the righteousness of God. Rather, it is none other than, we could say, the gospel of God, which unveils the righteousness of God, and the righteousness of God is his universally saving action in Christ Jesus. And through Christ Jesus' faithfulness and in the spirit of Christ. In Romans, which is in in effect Paul proclaiming this gospel to people who only had a rudimentary understanding of it. Just like the majority of Christendom today. We have a rudimentary, elementary understanding. We're really still unacquainted with, by and large, the word of God's righteousness. The gospel, that's the gospel. Much more is involved than the salvation of the individual. Much more than individual or even collective piety or moral righteousness. Much more is being proclaimed in the gospel of God about his son than the incorporation of Gentiles into Israel. Much more than that. That's part of it. The proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse or the unveiling of a mystery in Romans 16.25. The proclamation, kerygma, of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery has to do with God's plan to sum up the whole of the universe or now the multiverse heaven and earth in his son ephesians 1:10 this gospel proclaims an action of the triune god god does it so that man can stand in reverential awe of him and once we stand in reverential awe of him you know what we do we submit one to another in the fear of christ in the reverential awe of Christ, as we see in his face the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, and as it streams from his face into our hearts, we see each other in him. We see in his face the faces of our brethren, and therefore we submit to our brethren in the fear of Christ, 
or in the reverential awe of Christ. We see each other with reverential awe, not with the critique of Pharisees, but with the reverential awe that they are in Christ by an act of God. We submit to one another, therefore, in the fear or the reverential awe of Christ. The gospel proclaims an action of the triune God on behalf of all of creation and all of humanity in all of its times. In Ephesians 6.15, the gospel is rightly called the gospel of peace. To euangelio tes erenes, because it announces peace and it creates peace wherever it goes. It announces the peace that was made by the blood of Jesus Christ's cross, Colossians 1.20. It announces the peace that Jesus himself is, our peace, Ephesians 2.14. It imparts the peace that the world, with all of its programs, its ideologies, its collective efforts, cannot give and will never be able to give. As Richard Bauckham observed while considering the theology of Jürgen Moltmann, he made this statement, and I was intrigued by it, have been for months. He said, every movement of human progress within history has to forget some people. Those who are already past helping. Those to whom it cannot offer hope. But just as the crucified Jesus was identified in his dying, With the most wretched of the earth, so his risen future is open to the forgotten, the despairing, and the dying. That's a good statement, but I'd add to it. To that, I would add that Jesus Christ's risen future is open even to the dead, the forgotten dead, or the remembered dead. Jesus both died and came to life to be the Lord of the living and the dead. What program offered by the government can do anything for the dead or really do anything for all people? Marxism was a plan to help everybody, and yet you had to eliminate 120 million people that were dissidents to that program first, killing them, see? That's an ideology. It has to forget some people, as socialism always does, whatever form it takes. Socialism is communism, but it's a polite term for it. Moreover, I would amend this statement to say that this future is not only open to all, but guaranteed to all. Paul, who's not ashamed of the gospel, was not ashamed of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, and neither am I. And so, it's not only open, but guaranteed to all, including, and even with a kind of priority including, the forgotten by society, the dead and the living, the despairing and the dying. Every knee will genuflect to him, and every tongue of the living and the dead, those above the earth, under the earth, 
in the heavens will genuflect every tongue of the living and the dead will praise God, Romans 14, 11. God has already acted on behalf of the whole human race. God has done it. Man's got nothing to do but stand in awe. This is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, 22 to 23 agrees with Ecclesiastes and with Koheleth, the preacher. God has already acted in behalf of the whole human race, which he viewed as dead in sins. Ephesians 2, 5, Romans 3, 10 to 18, Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Psalm 53, 1 to 3. God has already acted in their behalf by granting them the justification of life. Romans 5, 18. What was the problem? What went wrong? Sin that brought death. How did God set it right? By his son becoming sin and overcoming death in resurrection and giving all the human race, dead in sins, the justification of life. We have to get out of time and into eternity to see the significance of this. That's what I called at the very beginning of this year for Tetelestai Phalanx, Operation Epsilon, seeing with God's sight. That's the ultimate lens. This all started with lenses. Remember that series? And that started with a man getting a second sight. The first sight, he says, I see all men as trees walking. That's kind of like a greenie. Trees, people, all the same. When Jesus said, you are worth many sparrows, that would probably offend some of the uh, nature lovers. You're worth more than many sparrows. There's some kind of priority there. In God's sight. He touched the man the second time and he said, I see all men clearly. I see all men. You see, the second sight lets you see all men clearly as the objects of a saving act of God in Christ. It's a matter of what you see. It all started with that. The ultimate lens is to see in God's sight. See with God's sight. See with Jesus' sight who looked over not just the people that crucified him and were throwing dung at him and cursing him and mocking him on the cross, Father, forgive them. He saw the whole range of all humanity in all of its times as Yahweh on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. And the Father forgave them. I don't apologize for seeing all men clearly just because you still see him as trees walking. And I don't say that to this audience. I say it to critics. There's one or two out there. Now, what this has done, this act has already occurred in history as it has occurred in God's eternity. If we speak then of positional truth, we must not speak of it only as a reality for a limited elect, but for all of humankind. In God's sight, all of humankind, once positioned in Adam, 
are now in God's sight positioned in Christ. The man above, the man from heaven. This cross-pollinates with our Doing and Living Theology series, which is essential if we're going to have progress in doctrine and in the Word of God. Essential is our tuition-free theology class on Wednesday nights. DLT. I might change that because it sounds too much like BLT, and I start hankering for one. Or what's even better than BLT is a BBT, bacon, basil, and tomato. Bingo. See what happens? I'm going to go get one now. Just so, no. I, the gospel of God about his son, when it's proclaimed by Koheleth, whoever he or she is, with the power of the Holy Spirit, awakens those who are asleep. And it effectively awakens them from the dead. Those that are dead to this reality. They're going around living. And politics is important to them. Sports is important to them. And there's nothing wrong with politics or sports being important to you. But if it's the final part of your vision. And it's the thing that excites you the most. And and you almost venerate. Then you're dead to the reality of the most important thing. The one needful thing, the reality of who you are in Christ, the reality of what God has done, that nothing can be put to it. Your believing can't be added to it. Your works can't be added to it. Your piety can't be added to it. Your disagreement can't take away from it. It's done. God did it to tell us die, and it is done is God's declaration. People walk around dead to that. They're alive, First Timothy 5, 6 says, but they're dead while they're living. The gospel wakes up the dead who are dead while they're living so they can be alive with life that's life indeed. First Timothy 6, 12 and 6, 19. With a taste of the life that's coming, with a taste of the bread that's going to be served at the top of the mountain in the city on a hill in a messianic banquet and fed to all the world. The bread of life. Give us today the bread of tomorrow is what Jesus Lord's prayer says. Not give us this day our daily bread. But give us today the bread of tomorrow that will be served in the messianic banquet. Give us a taste of it today, even now. Let the kingdom come into our lives even now. Let your will on earth be done even now in our lives, in our families, in our assembly. And don't let us crack under the pressure of the ordeal that comes necessarily with the clash of two ages. Grant us the grace for forgiveness as you've forgiven us. Grant us the grace to forgive others. That's the essence of the Lord's Prayer. And deliver us from all the plots of the evil one who likes to throw shade on this gospel and veil the hearts of the incredulous whether they are Christians or not veils the hearts the veil is on their hearts deliver us from the evil one who throws shade on this gospel the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God now 
The gospel awakens people to this life with a capital L. It makes the reconciled aware of their reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Be reconciled to God means you've already been reconciled to God. Wake up to your reconciliation. Be reconciled to the fact of your reconciliation. By the gospel of God about his son, Christ shines on people. Ephesians 5.14, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that streams from the face of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead to a bodily incorruptibility and immortality. That face, the light that comes from it, streams into our hearts. It streams into the heart by the proclamation of the gospel. Especially to those who call themselves Christians and, in fact, are, but are yet unacquainted with the word of righteousness. That righteousness means God's saving action for all of creation. Already done. Because this is so unfamiliar, we have to keep being exposed to the word of God. Keep exposing our souls to it because we don't think this way naturally. This knowledge of the Son of God comes sometimes in a flashing, glorious insight. More often, through a prolonged gaze, as in a mirror into the liberating word of Christ, the Torah, or the law of his saving and rectifying faithfulness, we, with open face, keep on gazing as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we are transformed from glory to glory little by little into that image in Romans sanctification is included in God's larger act of justification justifying grace is sanctifying grace what God has joined together let no man pull apart though these are considered categories of the variegated grace of God, conceptually speaking, they are in reality the same grace of God. There aren't graces of God. There is the grace of God, which is many-splendored, many-colored, many-tinted, polypokilos, as it says in the scriptures. The same grace. The effect of God's grace on sinners, therefore, is both rectifying and sanctifying. As all of humanity, as one man, turned from God in Adam and was condemned. So all of humanity, as one man, Christ, turned back to God and was justified. Let me put it this way. As all of humanity was seen to act in Adam who in essence said to God the Father, not your will but mine be done. So all of humanity was seen by God to act in Christ when Jesus said to the Father, whom he called Abba, in his most excruciating ordeal in Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done. Mark fourteen thirty six. This is the meaning of the mediatorship of Jesus Christ 
This is the meaning that Christ Jesus, the man, is the mediator between God and humankind at large, all of humankind, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is the meaning of his mediatorship, a most important doctrine. Romans 5:18 to 19 serves to slam this truth home. It slams it home. So then as through one sin came condemnation, which is death, condemned to death to all people. That's all the sons of Adam. So through the righteous act of one came the justification of life to all people. To all the sons of Adam. For just as through the disobedience of the one, the man that said for all of us, not your will but mine, the many were made sinners. Please notice they were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one who said for all of us, not my will but yours be done. And what's the father's will? That all would be saved. Not my will, but thine be done, yours be done, that it would be done through the unspeakable act of crucifixion of the Son of God. Not my will, but thine be done. The many were made righteous. Many equals all. Notice that he says made or constituted as righteous, not declared said to be, or given an imputation of it, which is really a fictional righteousness, because you're not really righteous, you just have an imputation legally, but you're still stuck in a suspended animation, sinning and rebounding. So here's life on a trampoline for you. No, it's not that at all. It says made righteous. That means made righteous, not just declared to be righteous or judged to be in the right. Now, this is congenial with the way Paul put it. When I say made righteous, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we would be made or become the righteousness of God in him. Made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is our righteousness. That's the same thing as saying Jesus is our justification. Who did that? God did that. This is God's doing who made Jesus Christ to be our righteousness. You can add something to that? Well, my faith, my believing, my walking down an aisle or my sorrow for my sin. No, wait a minute. Nothing can be added to it. Ooh. God has made him our righteousness or justification. Not only that, in the same breath, he said, He has made him our sanctification. 
He doesn't say, I, he made him our righteousness and later he'll make us, make him our sanctification. He said, he has made us, made Christ to be wisdom for us, which by which I mean our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. And to just slam home the effect of that in 1 Corinthians one thirty one, he says, so that no flesh will ever boast in his sight because nobody can add anything to this. It's a proclamation. The gospel is a proclamation. And Keith Lee was right when he said it's a, not an invitation. It's a proclamation. It's a proclamation to wake up. So a church is just a community of the awakened. A church should be a community of those with a second sight. Now, here's where dialectics comes in. All of this truth is concealed, camouflaged, and hidden by a pseudo-gospel that announces individual justification by individual faith leading to progressive piety through individual human cooperation with God. The truth which is really the epignosis knowledge of the Son of God, the truth, Ephesians 4.13, of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ is veiled from those who adhere to doctrines like this. They see, but only all men as trees walking. The God of this evil age, put 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, together with Galatians 1.4, and you'll identify that person. The God of this evil age has one task above all others in this world. I know this very well experientially as a preacher, as a Koheleth of the gospel. He has one task above all others, it is to veil this truth. In modern parlance, to throw shade on it. The task or the mission of the Holy Spirit and of preachers of the gospel who are rightly called co-laborers together with God 1 Corinthians 3, 9, our task is to unveil it, to make it clear through the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the unveiling or the revelation of a mystery, according to the unveiling of a mystery, the mystery of God's will to sum up everything in his son, Jesus Christ, whether things in heaven or on earth, whether thrones or dominions, principalities and powers, all the way down to parsley. That's the fullness of the gospel.
And this is the truth that is ultimately at stake in the doctrine of justification. Which is accurately presented by Paul, the imperial slave of Jesus Christ, in the epistle to the Romans. Justification amounts to what I call instauration. That means that all who were included in Christ's crucifixion and death were justified with him and in him, even better, in his resurrection from the dead. And all of the human race was so included. Therefore, justification is the rectification of our oppressed state and our enslaved condition under the power of sin and under the fear of death, which gives definition to every other kind of fear and phobia. Death is sin's wages. We need not fear death as sin's wage because the wages of sin might be death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. At first sight, you see that as applying to some. Second sight, you see that as applying to all. Don't apologize if you see all men clearly, all humans clearly, as the objects of a salvific act of God. Don't apologize to people for that. As one comedian said, and I'm just doing this tongue-in-cheek, don't be that guy who wears flip-flops and orders lemon loaf at Starbucks. I'm sorry for believing the true gospel. I'm sorry that that offended all of your religious sensibilities. <laughs> Not. I want you to notice something. I'm, giving, I'm parading today something God has done in me. Restraint. <laughs> the love of Christ constrains me and restrains me. Justification, therefore, is the rectification of our oppressed state and our enslaved condition under the power of sin and the fear of death. It is not a matter of crucifying yourselves, but a matter of accounting ourselves to have been crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 6. To have died with him, Colossians 3, 3. To have been buried with him in Colossians 2.12 and raised with him in Colossians 3.1 to newness of life in Romans 6.4. Same grace that makes us right, makes us holy, and makes us new. It's liberation from that condition and transformation to a new creation which means the putting off of the old enslaved self with its misdirected ambitions, its addictions, its predilections, its predispositions, and its dispositions. Programs like to work on the addictions or the predispositions or the dispositions. The gospel works on the whole old self with its deeds and its dispositions and its propensity to lie. 
For those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its self-destructive passions and its misdirected desires. We're getting close to here to what justification means in our own present livingness. It isn't just some declaration that we wait to be pronounced at the last judgment. It has an effect in our lives now, which is not only setting us right, but setting us apart from the evil age and its way of doing things. One can easily notice, in fact, as we started off this series in part one, that dikaiao for justified and hagiazo for sanctified are coetaneous or happening at the same time in 1 Corinthians 6.11 compared with 1 Corinthians 1.30. God made him to be justification and sanctification and Paul said to the people, now you are justified, now you are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Justified and sanctified. They are simultaneous actions performed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Sanctification and justification occur at once and continually in the lives of the saints. Such were some of you, Paul said to the Corinthians, means not just some of the Corinthian saints. The entirety of the human race was under the enslaving power of sin, Romans 3.9. That enslavement took different forms. One who's enslaved to a certain kind of sin like self-righteousness, which is not only sin but evil, will judge someone else who is under the control of sin expressed in some moral failure. But the enslavement, though it takes different forms, is overall. Paul lists different forms it takes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Ephesians 5, 3 to 6. But the point I want to make here in justification part 8 is that justification is associated with the Spirit of God, not only in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but in 1 Timothy 3, 16 and Titus 3, 4 to 7. And this truth that's encapsulated in those little verses or passages is fanned out in Romans 6, 1 through 8, 13, a big section of Romans, where the Spirit has an indispensable function and a vital operation in our justification slash sanctification. So the accusation that says, quote, if a person is justified unconditionally by grace, they have been issued a license to sin. says the preacher with flip-flops who orders lemon loaf at Starbucks and shares it. But this is answered by the Koheleth, the dirty hairy of preachers. (laughs) This is a point that I'm making. Justification is integrally linked with sanctification. The one who sets right and makes right sets apart and makes holy. Justification is not just a declaring of an individual to be right or to be legally right. It is making someone right. Justification is synonymous, therefore, with rectification and simultaneous with sanctification. 
Sanctification is not that by which a person is merely declared to be holy, but is made holy. As Peter quotes Leviticus 11.44, be holy as I am holy. And God isn't just declared to be holy. He is holy. Set apart from evil. Now don't get me wrong here. The positional truth is not any longer for a few, but for all. All the human race in God's sight has been justified, has been sanctified, has been redeemed. He's present to our future. But he comes, with, he comes to us with a disruptive grace. Disrupts our lives with it. Thank God. Well, if you love your life the way it is and just the way it's going, go ahead. But if you're coming here, you're going to have grace disrupt it. Different kind of life is offered. Neither of these verbs connote sinless perfection. Dikaiao and hagiazo in this present life, neither one of them connote sinless perfection. That's something that does not occur, occur outside of beatific experience in the life after death and especially in the life after life after death called the resurrection. Nevertheless, these terms denote something more than a mere forensic position before God, which is a fictive or fictional kind of righteousness. Justification must not be considered to be merely a legal standing, nor should sanctification be merely a religious or cultic position. Better than that, God has made Jesus Christ to be both righteousness and holiness for us, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30, as I said before. Our union with him, our being in him, means that we have been crucified with him. And yes, we were there, as Vicki rightly said today, when they crucified our Lord. We were there. We were in him. And when he arose justified, we arose justified with him. Now, while we're in the process of being set right in our experience and set apart by God's gracious action in us, we may sin from time to time. But as John says, if anyone sins, let him or her know that he or she has an advocate with God, namely Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the living evidence and proof of expiation or the putting away of sins. And not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world of humankind over all time. Now listen carefully, because this is introducing something that needs to be introduced into our present livingness. When we do sin, that's one thing God doesn't do. <laughs> when we do sin, that's one thing Christ doesn't do. We are not to engage in self-exculpation, which means all the excuses that people give. 
I wouldn't have done that if it weren't for the woman you gave me. I wouldn't have done that except for the serpent you put in the garden. I wouldn't have done that, but I was under terrific pressure. I'm a leader. I have pressure on me. So people will forgive me for my sins, and they'll think, oh, he's like David. No, that's Bachelor of Science stuff. There's no self-exculpation, removal of ourselves from culpability. Rather, we confess or admit the sin. So we didn't think that worked anymore. Oh, yes, it does. What do you think? God is faithful and God is just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, which means all that is not God's saving action in our experience as we acknowledge them. First John 1 John 1.9, heard that before? We stepped away from it for a while so we could put it in its right perspective. This is not referring to the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1.14, Ephesians 1.7, which we already have. The forgiveness of all of our sins we have by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We have it. He's not talking about that in John, 1 John 1.9. But he's talking about the subjective experience of that forgiveness and that cleansing and that clearing and that <sighs> of forgiveness. When we acknowledge our sin, not to a congregation, but privately to God, rather than attempting to exculpate ourselves or refuse to take accountability for our sinful action. Like the Christian who says, oh, did you see what they did? And they call themselves a Christian and they voice it to people and they are guilty of the worst sin of self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And they won't even, ex, they will exculpate themselves from that because they won't even admit, they won't even see that. They're outside, so far outside of seeing the second sight that it's not even, it's not even worth mentioning. They're so far gone. The love of God isn't in them at all. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. I know you that the love of God is not in you because love covers a multitude of sins. We're talking about our livingness now. When we sin, we privately admit it and confess it to God. Now listen carefully to this because this is taking us on to some new ground and some more important ground. Being forgiven for the sins that we commit and acknowledge does not mean that at the point of our acknowledgement, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive the forgiveness of sins when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And the Father forgave us in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 4.32. Now, Paul put it this way. If in the process of being justified in Christ, and he showed it as a process in our livingness, we find that we are sinners. He says, does that make Christ the aider and abetter of sins? Is Christ the servant of sin, because we find out we're sinners as we're being justified by God's grace? No, of course not. In Galatians 2.17, we did it. I did it. 
Being forgiven for already forgiven sins is like being reconciled as those who have been reconciled. Now here's the point. It's a matter of subjective experience of our objective forgiveness. So still relevant, and don't wipe these off the board. Still relevant for us in Christ is the warning of Proverbs 28, 13. The one who conceals his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. That's experiential livingness now. The confession is an interior acknowledgement of culpability in the commission of a sin. It is privately acknowledged to God who forgives us of the sin and purifies us from anything that does not have saving, liberating, and transformative significance in our lives. You know this by experience. You know this. Under the doctrine of justification, and here's where the problem lies. Under the doctrine of justification as a forensic imputation, which I held for a while myself, I have sinned. Under the doctrine of justification as a mere forensic imputation of righteousness, sin tends to be seen as a casual inevitability and tends to be taken lightly. Under the doctrine of justification as sanctification, sin is more like a catastrophic event which we must acknowledge and renounce. I remember the first time I felt this, I looked at a brother, a younger brother who had problems, and I swelled up with inflated pride. And the Lord put a needle right in that balloon and and I was deflated. I was ashamed. I thought my pride against that brother was a catastrophic event that destroyed entirely my life at that moment. I didn't have to acknowledge my culpability. I knew it so well. The Holy Spirit was responsible not for the sin, but for waking me up to just how sinful that sin was. I wasn't walking in love toward him. So, under the doctrine of justification as sanctification, as I understand it now, sin is more like a catastrophic event which we must acknowledge and, yes, renounce. There is an authentic God-induced sorrow and remorse that leads to authentic repentance and a moral conversion. A moral conversion is simply when you take your satisfactions and subordinate them to real values that the scripture awakens you to. In other words, authentic repentance and a moral conversion which puts true values over personal satisfactions. This also leads to salvation. which is the experience of deliverance from sin's dominion. Which is not to be repented of, Paul said, with irony, and of which there is no occasion for remorse. That salvation means you're in a state of life in which there's no occasion for remorse. 
This is what Paul was explaining to the Corinthian saints who had sinned in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 11 and whom Paul raked over the coals and caused sorrow in them and grief in them and pain in them. In a letter that caused them great sorrow or pain, Paul referred to that letter. People say, it's some letter that was lost. No, it isn't. It's 1 Corinthians. I caused you pain. But he said the pain was as God would have it that would lead to a repentance that would lead to a self-clearing through a self-vindication, through a breathing again of the breath of life. You know what it's like. The forensic view of justification underestimates just how egregious sin and capital S-I-N, sin is. And it tends to mock the seriousness of sin, or sin, capital S-I-N. But to mock the seriousness of sin is to mock God's own view of sin and capital S-I-N. But you know what? God will not be mocked. I'm going to close on a negative note. (laughs) It's really a positive note. God will not be mocked. If we sow to the flesh, this is our life and our livingness now. If we sow to the flesh, which is to choose a personal satisfaction against the will of God over the value that we know to be what is good, what is righteous, what is virtuous, what is pure, what is sanctity, what is God's view. We sow to the flesh, choosing personal satisfactions against the will of God over values. We will, from the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, reap a harvest of misery. Now you say, a harvest, you mean my life will be miserable? Yep. For how long? Till you die. In fact, there are things we do that we think are so tantalizing, and we do it, And we end up suffering misery for the rest of our lives because we did it. It felt so good that it couldn't be wrong, but it saddled me with something for the rest of my life. Now, does that mean for the rest of your life in that harvest of misery, you can't experience eternal life and overcome that misery? Of course not. I'm just saying that in our experience, you can't take sin lightly, which justification as a mere declaration of righteousness tends to do. And they take it as a light, well, it's inevitable, you know, how many times I sinned today, 40 or 50. At the end of the day, I did a little search. Well, I sinned about 82 times today, but I rebounded and I'm all right. Rebounded and I'm all right. Rebounded and I'm all right. Or I confessed it to a priest and I'm all right, I'm all right. I used to do that as a kid because I had to. Father, I sinned, I lied, I swore, I stole something, I disobeyed my parents. I said that the same time, every every time, the same thing. If it was one priest, he gave me five Hail Marys. If it was another one, he gave me ten with two Our Fathers. It's all the same thing, though. You take it lightly because you confess it. 
That's why I distanced myself from the doctrine of rebound and came back to 1 John 1, 9 to show the true value of forgiveness and the true egregious nature of sin. It shouldn't be something we think as a light inevitability, but as a catastrophic event to our spiritual lives and time and our livingness with God. So the next time you're tempted to take that personal satisfaction and put it above the value of a life and a livingness in Christ, you might think about it twice. Is it worth it? You say, our pastor is preaching about sin. Yep. Difference between me and the preacher that wants to share a lemon loaf? I'll get a lemon loaf, but I'll eat it all. <laughs> and I'll never tell anybody that I got a lemon loaf. I'm speaking, I'm, I'm just taking material from a comedian. So in closing, we sow to the flesh, we will from the flesh reap a harvest of misery in this life. It's a harvest that ends at death. Thank the Lord. If we sow to the spirit, I'll end on a positive note. We will reap a harvest of the experience of the life of the coming age, even now. How about that? Ephesians, make that Galatians 6, 8. If we sow to the Spirit, placing eternal values above personal satisfactions, it's amazing the personal satisfaction you end up with by sowing to the Spirit. It's a joy that's unspeakable. It's a joy that shares the joy of your risen Savior. It's a joy that's free from the guilt of condemnation and self-condemnation and the evil of guilt. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap a harvest of life, eternal meaning an experience of the life of the coming age right into our present life and livingness. The kingdom of God comes into our life. The will of God is done on earth in our lives as it is in heaven. We taste of the bread and the manna that will be served by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to the universally redeemed at the messianic banquet. Even now we're already seated at that table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Some of us come from the west, some from the east, some from the north. Some from the south. But we're seated. Today, you have eaten some of the bread of tomorrow that will be served to us all. I think you're beginning to see. And people have said, distance yourself from rebound. You don't rebound every time before every message. That's the final straw. We're out of here. Bye. Isn't it amazing that the true view of justification views sin as exceedingly sinful and is far less likely to entertain it lightly? Okay, that's Koheleth. Next time I will be more gentle with you. Or maybe not. 
Father, thank you for this opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of liberation, freedom. Thank you that justification means more than a legal imputation. But it's something that invades our life with disruptive grace. And that brings us into a life and a livingness that is a preview of things to come in the age that, in which everything is eternalized. In which righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit will be the steady and uninterrupted experience. Father, I pray that you'll take today's message and bring it into our life and livingness so that the times that we have of sweet fellowship with you and with others in the reverential awe of Christ will be extended and not as often interrupted. And I ask this in Jesus' name. All I'm asking, Father, is that your name be hallowed in our lives.